This City Wire podcast is sponsored by Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust. Scottish Mortgage invests in some of the world's most promising and exceptional companies, from healthcare breakthroughs to electric vehicles to a green energy revolution. Scottish Mortgage takes stakes in businesses shaping our future economy and society. Scottish Mortgage is considered the flagship trust of Edinburgh-based investment managers Bailey Gifford and is the UK's largest investment trust. As with any investment, please note capital is at risk. To find out more, please visit scottishmortgageit.com. Hello, my name is Sean Schaefer and welcome to The Wealth Show from CityWire. In our first episode back for 2022, I spoke with Nick Clay, manager of the RWC Global Equity Income Fund. Nick spoke about why he invests in so-called boring tech and how some of these firms are trading like value stocks. He also commented on Samsung's poor performance, why 5G firm Qualcomm is moving away from its reliance on Apple and why he reduced his position in luxury goods brand Richemont. To get the latest updates on this podcast, click the follow button on Spotify. It's been just over a year since you started running your fund for RWC. Um, which stocks have been the biggest contributors to performance? So uh, the biggest and largest drivers of performance last year were our technology stocks. So things like Cisco, Qualcomm, Infosys. Uh, one of our retail stocks, Richemont, in the luxury retail uh, space as well. Um but predominantly, it was those technology companies, um, and even some that are outside of the U.S., like Sage. Um, and really, that was to do with a combination of two things. I think there was obviously um, in the second half of the year, I would say, once the sort of value bounce uh, from the vaccine from November 2020 started to to wane from about Q2 onwards. And yields and the yield started falling and flattening again in the second half of the year. You tend to see that favouring the technology sector. Um, and that was no different for our holdings too. But also as the year went through, you start to see some of the performance of those stocks coming through uh, from an operational point of view. And I guess uh, one of the, the most obvious ones of that was Qualcomm. Um, which had actually been a poor performer up until November and then had results and then it caught up very quickly in the last two months of the year as people realised that it was quite undervalued considering what it was delivered. Could you go into a bit of detail about what Qualcomm does actually? Yeah, certainly. Well, so Qualcomm um, is basically the the world leader in 5G technology. Um, uh, It's been the world leader in... Uh, G technology, 2G, 3G, 4G, now 5G uh, over the decades. Um, And it got held back throughout the year, mainly because people got concerned about um, the supply disruption in semis uh, and how that might crimp output and production of many companies across lots of industries, but affecting Qualcomm too. Um, And an and as we got to the end of the year, it became very apparent that that was not really happening, that they had managed the supply chain difficulties very well. They were still showing exceptional growth, you know, 30, 40 percent. Um, and yet they were trading on a valuation uh, more, like more like a bombed out value stock. You know, they were trading on a free cash flow yield of around 7 percent. Uh, where you had some of the other fast-growing technology companies in the world, like your Microsofts, et cetera, trading on free cash flow yields of below three. 
Um, uh, and, and then suddenly he was a company that seemed to be left behind. So I mean, he went up 35% plus just in November alone um, uh, and continued through. You say sort of the market was semi, sort of negative because of its reliance on obviously semiconductors, but obviously that's still a problem with this company. Why, why has that kind of been alleviated for Qualcomm? Mainly because they've, they've managed to um, manage that cycle well. Um, i.e. they've got ahead of it uh, they've been able to manage their supply chain better than some others uh, and some others in other industries like the auto industry for example um, and and therefore they have been able to effectively carry on delivering on the growth side of things um, better than people had thought the company would over the course of the year Um and that, I think, is what had been holding itself. And there's another company, uh, which we own, Samsung, which has not done well, um, but for quite similar reasons, where there's concern over uh, the semis industry, there's concern over the memory industry, and there's concern, obviously, over the sale of, of um, phones. And, of course, a lot of Qualcomm's 5G stuff still goes into phones. Um, but... Uh, they just managed that process so much better than people were expecting. I think the other thing as well that um, pleasantly surprised people is that they are continuing to diversify their business away from just phones and particularly things like Apple um, into other industries, uh, very much the Internet of Things, so industrialization of the Internet into um, very much the industrial businesses um, and also in the auto industry as well. So now almost 45% of their business is non-phone related. And that, again, gives the business a lot more um, stability uh, through that diversification and something that obviously people want to see because although at the moment and for the next foreseeable future, for the next four to five years, Apple are bought in to Qualcomm, um, as we know from a couple of years ago, the very aggressive um, legal cases that they that um, uh, Apple and Qualcomm found themselves in, you can see that the relationship between those two is probably not the best. Uh, and therefore, there's always the fear that when we come to the end of the current deal with Apple, that they will try to walk away again. Uh, and there's lots of talk, for example, of Apple trying to do all this in-house and make their own chips, which has never been proven possible in the past with anybody else. Nokia tried to go down that route too. Um, but that's always a fear that overhangs it. So again, seeing increasing diversification across their business is another uh, particularly big plus for the company with regards to um, having some confidence on the sustainability of the cash flow. Well, yeah, I mean, that, that must be a risk because obviously we've seen with Apple on its uh sort of desktop and laptop chips and moving away from Intel to its own sort of proprietary chips. Obviously, they, they're pretty keen on that. So, so that must be a major risk for Qualcomm there. Yeah, I mean, it is a, it, I mean, it is a risk, undoubtedly. Um, um, sometimes people can, can get a bit too confident about that risk um, because, again, history has taught us that, one, it's far more difficult than it would appear on paper to be able to do. And many have tried and failed. Um, and a lot of this is to do with uh, the fact that Qualcomm set the standards in mobile 5G because they, from an IP point of view, 
innovation point of view, they are the ones that lead the industry. They also find themselves in a special situation where they tend to set the standards. And, and of course, these standards have to apply not just to Apple, but across every mobile phone operator and every 5G user. In the same way, too, for example, with Intel, um, you know, you've, you've seen the, the passage that they've gone through, and you saw quite interestingly through a lot of the data that came out during those court cases that Apple were running uh, Intel chips and Qualcomm chips in their phones, and they were having to effectively dumb down the Apple phones with the Qualcomm chips in in order to make sure they perform the same as the Intel chip phone. Because obviously you can't buy an iPhone 12 at the time and have one of them performing differently from the other. Um, so they had to make sure they did it the same. But in the court cases, it came out that they were dumbing down the, the Qualcomm chips in order to make them the same as the Intel. And also once Cork, uh, Apple conceded and then you know signed up the six-year contract with um, Qualcomm, Intel itself stood up on the day and said, we're pulling out of this whole area because we just can't compete. They are only being brought back into the semis market via the governments, basically, and the geopolitical risks that hang over. And that's more to do with TSMC than it is to do with Qualcomm. But that's why Intel being brought back into this industry. Let's move back to Samsung. You mentioned it earlier that it, it hasn't performed very well over the past year. Um, and I kind of wanted, wanted to compare it to, as you've been mentioning, Apple, which has had an, an incredible year. And, and obviously, Apple is one of Samsung's sort of direct competitors. So, so why has it underperformed um, when the likes of Apple have done so well? Well, so it's, I mean, <clears throat> it's slightly unfair to compare the two companies as the same, uh, Apple being completely dependent upon uh, the iPhone and, and, and the Mac, whereas Samsung has a lot, a lot more memory to its business, DRAM and NAND. Um, and it's the memory side that people are concerned about. It's, it has been cyclical in the past. It remains a cyclical industry. Um, but one of the things that we've noticed and the reason why we bought into this back in 2018 was that those cycles are getting far less pronounced. And they're getting far less pronounced because um, basically Moore's law is breaking down in a lot of areas of technology, i.e. this idea of being able to produce more for, for the same price, i.e that this is becoming a more capital-intense business. And what that means is that the industry is consolidating around this, the big players. And that is introducing pricing discipline into the cycle. It is also making it far more difficult for new capacity to just come in uh, when prices are high. And therefore, you're not getting such a violent amplitude in the cycle of DRAM prices. And you know, that was the theory, that was the investment thesis um, back in 2018, and it proved to be the case with the last cycle we went through. And then this time round, people have started to try and discount the next cycle coming. Uh, and again, and we think wrongly, but again, they're now, you know, they're pricing in again that we go down to one of the, the, the bottoms of previous cycles in the past, i.e. quite a sharp downturn in memory. Um, and two things we would say is one that well, we think this capital intensity uh, and consolidation within the industry means that those cycles are nowhere near as deep. But equally, what's 
quite interesting this time around is we haven't really had a massive upcycle in the first place where normally you at least get some strength on the upside before you had the downside. So I think people are getting ahead of themselves uh, and are now valuing Samsung, quite frankly, as if we're at the bottom of that cycle already, which is where we were last time, which is on about eight times earnings. So we think uh, it's, it's, it's discounting too much bad news. It's discounting news that hasn't even happened yet. Uh, and we don't think it's going to happen, and therefore it looks like a really uh, a very cheap stock at the moment in our portfolio. Let's let's move on more generally, where where you're seeing the best income opportunities in 2022. We've talked a lot about tech, actually, which is probably not not very normal for an income manager. Maybe you kind of mm. kind of wanted to sort of describe what opportunities you're seeing over the next year. Yeah, I mean, I find there's two big areas really. One is, I mean, I call it boring tech simply because the market doesn't want to put it on the insane valuations it's quite willing to put other technology companies on, like Apple and Microsoft. Um, uh, and I think these are interesting companies because not only are they very well, they've got great valuations. You know, Cisco, for example, another one of our top holdings, is still on a 6% free cash flow yield. Um, these companies... Uh, not only offer good valuation, but they're also offering structural growth. You know, they are exposed to some of the structural um, thematic growth things that are going on in technology. As you talked about 5G, the internet things, security, um, things moving more to the edge and away from the from centralization or, or cloud and um, processing and having to do things at the edge is becoming more and more uh, where the demand of the whole of this industry is going. And all of these companies are exposed in some way to to those structural drivers. So not only are you getting cheap companies, but you're getting them where the, the uh, underlying cash flows and their profits are going to grow. So you're getting on a decent yield, a yield greater than that of the market. You know, we have to sell everything in our portfolio that yields less than the market. So they're all yielding more than the market. And we think they're going to grow their dividends from there. We think that's quite exciting. The other place where we obviously think uh, we're seeing decent yields today is in staple companies, uh, an area of the market that until literally just recently been left behind for the last three years. Uh, um, and yet the yields are good on there. They've got pricing power in a world where inflation is returning. I don't know how long it will return for, but companies certainly need to have some kind of pricing power at the moment. Um, and people have been reminded of why they're called staple stocks in the first place, which is that people need to buy these things that gives them pricing power. And, and how concerned are you when, you when you're looking at boring tech, as you put it, um, about inflation on those companies? So, I mean, a lot of uh, a lot of technology companies' business models are built upon deflation. Uh, you know, hence the whole fundamental part of Moore's law driving this through. Um, so, what you need to do in order to find companies which can sort of counter that, uh, if we move into an inflation environment, is ones where they just dominate their market positions. Um, so, your TSMC being able to put up their prices by twenty percent last year. Samsung have been putting up their prices in memory. They dominate that marketplace. Uh, Qualcomm putting up their prices in 5G. All of these these companies that completely dominate the market sectors or segments that they happen to operate in. And that's what you're going to need in this kind of environment because, um, as we say, a lot of this industry is based upon cause built or been born during a period of deflation. You know, their whole business models are based upon that way of operating. Um, 
Uh, and a lot of what they do is about making their stuff cheaper. I mean, Amazon, for example, you know, it's the whole raison d'etre of that company. Um, so it's it's thinking about those companies whose market position allows them to put up prices where their products are still must-have products and where their products are not um, a massive cost of the overall uh, thing that they're, that they're producing, for example. Um, and again, that's where you can start to see people that have some kind of pricing power. I wanted to move on to looking at the UK. Um, and I wondered whether the UK had become a bit more attractive to you after perhaps a bit of a resurgence in dividend payments. Obviously, the UK is still kind of famous as a dividend market. And despite you being a global fund, um, is the UK going to sort of eke more into your into your strategy? Uh, we are we are overweight UK. Um, uh, we've already got a pretty decent weighting there, although that's not exposed to the domestic UK economy. It's mainly through the more global multinational companies, the likes of BATS, the likes of uh, BAE Systems, the likes of Diageo, etc. Um, uh, and to be perfectly honest, from our perspective, those companies have weathered very well uh, the pandemic and, and Brexit um, to the point where it hasn't really affected their dividend payouts. It hasn't affected their ability to pay those dividends. It has been more the UK domestic players which have gone through that kind of cycle. Um, and, and what we don't see, what we don't see any evidence of is that we are at the foothills of a new economic super cycle. Um, I that the bounce back we've seen from the pandemic, we do not see that as the start of some very long trend in economic expansion. We see it simply as a bounce back from the pandemic. Um, and therefore, we are not finding ourselves drawn to, I suppose you could call it, traditional deep value parts of the market, you know, your banks, your industrials, etc. And so, you know, and quite a lot of that can be found in the UK. So we're 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 not fishing around in that area at the moment, simply because we think we're more late in this cycle than most people tend to think. And there are are there any sort of geographic markets that are looking promising to you in terms of dividends? Mainly Europe, I would say, sort of northern Europe. Um, I think Europe kind of got itself in a pickle, really, um, uh, and therefore they're going to find it much harder to withdraw stimulus to increase rates. Um, and that remains a pretty favourable backdrop for companies either operating within Europe um, or financing themselves through the European market. Um, you know, that will remain a positive for them compared to, say, the US that is going to have to start tightening and is going to, as we've been told. Um, and, and Asia, obviously, who haven't even gone down that route in the first place. So I think that's the place where I would expect to see conditions remaining loose and therefore dividends can grow um, uh, in those kind of companies. I want to hark back to some of the tech stocks. Um, obviously, Cisco is one of the, your largest holdings in your portfolio. The shares are up about 11% since the start of December. Um, perhaps you could go into what's been driving that recent drive to performance and, and whether you're a bit concerned um, of, of, of an impending fall there. Yeah, I mean, I, I, all of these things, I think, are sort of slow. They kind of hopefully get rich slow stocks, really, in the sense that um, over time it dawns on the market that the initial controversy that surrounded those companies 
um, has proven not to be true. And the, and the controversy with Cisco was it's a hardware company. Uh, there's massive downward price pressure. Things are commoditizing in that market. That's terrible for Cisco. Old, boring technology company. Uh, everyone wants software companies. Whereas the reality is, is that the dominance of Cisco's position with its customers is allowing it and has allowed it as a business to transition from a hardware business to a software business, which it's now done, you know, over the course of the last year and a bit, it's moved to over 50% of its business being software. Uh, obviously much higher margin, obviously more repeatable in terms of revenues, not so lumpy. Um, uh, and of course, more highly valued by the marketplace. Um, coupled with that though, uh, it, it, it's one of the market leaders in security. Um, and that has been a sort of a longer term theme which continues to grow as people you know, having to address and spend far more on security of their IT infrastructure. Um, and then equally, there is still an element, you know, because only over 50% is software, uh, still an element of Cisco, which has got a bit of cyclicality to corporate capex in IT. And of course, as we're opening up the economies, um, you know, people are starting to pick up in that and campus spend, et cetera. And so you put all that together, you know, it's a company that's transitioned to a higher margin business and, and something more repeatable. You've got some good thematic exposure too, uh, and you've got a little bit of opening up play in it too, um, and it's trading on a 6% free cash flow yield, then that looks pretty attractive. Another stock that I was quite surprised had driven so much performance in your portfolio was uh, Richemont. Um, it seems to have done exceptionally well, um, and and perhaps surprised me because you know a success of luxury goods, which I wouldn't have thought would be the first port of call during a pandemic. Um, and perhaps you could kind of give your insight on the rationale behind that, and, and maybe you know if we're going into a bit of an inflationary environment over the next year or two, whether that's kind of set for a fall as well. Yeah. So. <laughs> Well, the first thing to say is, you know, Richemont is, is basically Cartier. Um, uh, it's watches business um, a few years ago now suffered on the back of the um, clampdown on China, in China of bribery, etc. And so that's when we got interested in Richemont when Swatch business came under huge amounts of pressure because it was basically just Cartier. Luxury jewellery, average selling price is very, very high. Um and you know, no real surprise, I guess, um, that during the pandemic, the, the particularly wealthy part of the world's population tend not to suffer at all, um, as is always the way. And in fact, if anything, all the response to the pandemic did um, it just increased the wealth of the wealthiest people uh, in the world. It increased inequality across society, uh, and basically supported to a large degree. Um, a lot of the customer base of luxury goods um, producers, Richemont included. Um, there was a little bit of a wobble in it through the middle of the year as China again talked about balancing up or leveling up their economy um, and for once sort of leading the world in that. Um, and people read that as, here we go again, we're on another clampdown of the uber rich and and their spending habits but actually when you read what they were talking about that's not what they were saying they were just saying that future growth in wealth in china has to be far more evenly spread around its economy and not just go to all the jack mars etc um uh and therefore 
that didn't really actually undermine Richemont's customer base. And if anything, uh, a drive to try and increase the middle classes um, within uh, China and the aspirations that come with that is actually a good thing for luxury goods and Richemont as well. So obviously, as numbers continue to be very strong throughout the course of the year, that fear never came to, to came out to be real um, uh, and the stock's done incredibly well on the back of it. I mean, in an inflationary environment, uh, quite frankly, price is kind of a secondary <laughs> consideration. And in fact, if anything, they're a bit like gifts and goods. You know, the, the, the more expensive they are, the more desirable they become. So they certainly don't have a problem with regards to pricing, passing on pricing in any way since uh, uh, shape or form. But I would say, though, that from a valuation perspective, it is, it's getting a bit rich, um, uh, having done so well. And it's starting to extrapolate this level of growth out into the future, which we know is never the case. Um, uh, and even within luxury, we do have a few cycles muted, though they may be. I mean, on that basis, are you, are you looking to sort of... Um shave off some of your allocation to the stock we already uh we already took its position size down um uh right towards the end of the year yeah like pretty much every equity income manager there you've you've got a a selection of sin stocks in your portfolio you've got diageo shell british american tobacco pepsi um you know how how do you approach esg as a fund i know i know you're not branding this fund in any way as an esg fund but um, can you kind of account for these kind these kind of companies in a in a fund in 2022? Um, I think you can. Um, I mean, I think that it depends on how you look at ESG, really, and, and what you think uh, is one of the best approaches. We think that engagement, improvement, transition of companies to a new world making themselves better is actually ultimately going to be to the, the biggest benefit of the shareholder too. Um, as uh, we go through those transition periods, so Shell is a really good example of that. You know, obviously, as it moves to a renewable energy company, you know, we feel that that will be a profitable journey from a shareholder point of view as well as for the world and the climate and um, and the problems that we face. Um, uh, and it, and you know, it might turn out to be that it's a classic traveling arriving that by the time they actually finally get to the point where they're a renewable energy company, you might want to hold them. But we think that kind of transition, uh, when they become almost the ESG heroes of the world, uh, that they will be the profitable way of doing things. You know, and Pepsi is a really good example of that, where you know, over 50% of their stuff now uh, that they distribute is is what they call good for you or well-being or you know is lowering sugar lowering salt uh it, it is made differently is now made from lentils etc cetera, etc cetera. you know they are trying uh to dramatically improve the health and the sugar and the salt uh content of the goods that they distribute uh to their consumers and and that ultimately is the strength of pepsi which is that they dominate all the distribution channels, quite frankly. They are uh, two, three times bigger than their number two player in this market, in the snacks market. Um, and so if it, it, you know, if it transpires that the future 
for everybody is all that we do is eat seaweed and and uh, drink algae, well, then it will be Pepsi that's distributing that to us, um, uh, and it will be Pepsi branded. Rather than uh, just going, we don't want to invest in any company because of what it does, we're going to try and starve it at capital. Because in order to achieve what we need to achieve from ESG goals, we're going to need these companies to change. Uh, and we think encouraging them to do so um, uh, is the best way forward. And even in a tobacco company, um, you know, we are invested in two tobacco companies, BAT and, and Philip Morris PMI. Um, and they're the only two tobacco companies who are meaning, meaningfully spending money on trying to deliver tobacco in a way that doesn't kill you. Um, and we think that's a good thing. Uh, and they are the only ones committed. I mean, PMI particularly have been open about this, uh, committed to um, removing combustible cigarettes permanently. I think within 10 years, they said they're going to remove Marlboro from the UK market, for example. How do tobacco companies make money if they don't sell cigarettes? problem with tobacco is the way it's consumed, which is through combustible way, you know, uh, lighting a cigarette. It's, um, it's not nicotine. Uh, it's the way you consume it. Therefore, if you can deliver nicotine to people in a way that doesn't kill them, like heat not burn, like vaping, and I'm not saying that they are because the jury's still out. I, we don't know yet if that is genuinely a way of doing it without um, compromising your health. But at the moment, that seems to be a solution. Then there's no reason why these companies can't uh, ultimately still be dis- delivering nicotine, but in a way that doesn't compromise your health in any way. But another way to think about it, uh, and this is what PMI has started to signal, is that uh, running that business to zero, running combustible cigarettes down to zero, harvests a lot of cash. And then you look at that cash pile and go, we're going to spend it on something different. Now, at the moment, spending on new generation ways of delivering nicotine. But actually, the first thing that PMI has bought is an inhaling company, a medical technology company. Who's to say that these aren't the cheapest SPACs in the market? And ultimately, at the other end, they'll end up being med tech companies or something completely different. I don't know. Um, but they certainly, what I do certainly know is that they've been priced to go out of business within five years, which is unlikely to happen. Um, and yet they are trying and spending their money to try and solve the problems that they create in society. Well, Nick, thank you so much for joining me today. That's okay. My pleasure. It's been great to chat. Thank you. This CityWire podcast is sponsored by Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust. Scottish Mortgage invests in some of the world's most promising and exceptional companies, from healthcare breakthroughs to electric vehicles to a green energy revolution. Scottish Mortgage takes stakes in businesses shaping our future economy and society. As with any investment, capital is at risk.